0: I would invite you to open your Bible with me to Titus chapter 2, Titus chapter 2, as we return to our study of this short but critical epistle that provides instructions for us today, Titus chapter 2. Titus 2 is the heart of the letter where Paul instructs Titus to teach believers to live out the purpose for which they were redeemed by Jesus Christ. And so it's my purpose uh, today and next time, two weeks from now, uh, to cover the first 10 verses so that come Sunday, December 19th, we'll arrive at verse 11, which begins, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. That seems a fitting text for the Sunday before Christmas. Before we read the text, I want you to pay careful attention to the purpose statements that we find in this chapter The so that statements, there are technically five of them, but four of them specifically explain why it is important that believers live according to these standards. So pay attention to those. Let's read, follow along as I read the chapter to set it in our minds. In fact, let me start with the last verse in chapter one. They profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny him being detestable, disobedient, and worthless for any good deed. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible in all things. Show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity in doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Urge bond slaves or slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, And reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let's ask the Lord's blessing as we study His Word. Our fathers, we come to a passage like this. We are confronted with a standard of living that is different than what the world would call us to. It's different, perhaps, than some of us have witnessed in our homes growing up. And in some ways, to one degree or another, it's different than what we see in our own lives. And so I pray that as we study this text, that you would not just help us understand the meaning of it, but more than that, that you would help us to desire to live this way because it is good, because it is beautiful, because it produces joy And most of all, because it brings glory to your name and reflects what Christ has done for us. Lord, help us all to have open hearts and open ears. Help me to be your faithful servant, to accurately convey the truth of your word to your people so that your spirit can do his work in each heart. For the sake of Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, did you catch those purpose statements? The first one I would draw your attention to is at the end of verse 5, where he says, So that the word of God will not be dishonored. Simply saying, the way you live has an impact positively or negatively on the reputation of God. The next one is in verse 8, where it says, So that the opponent will be put to shame having nothing bad to say about us, which is to say that the way you live will have an impact positively or negatively on the reputation of God's people. The next one is in verse 10, where he says, so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. This is to say that the way that you live will have an impact positively or negatively on the reputation of God's gospel. And then the final one is there in verse 14. That He gave Himself for us too, or you could say so that, in order to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. This is really the overarching purpose of why Christ gave Himself for us, namely to create a society of his own people who, while living in the world, would live distinctly from the world. Taken together, all of the purpose statements tell us that these instructions are given to us so that as the world observes us, me, you, as the world observes our lives, they will stand in awe at the God. Who saves us. Or in the words of Jesus in Matthew 5.16, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now we'll come back to these statements as we walk through the text over the next uh, couple messages. But I wanted to set that in your minds because that is the, the framework really of what Paul is saying in these instructions on how each of us should be living Our our text for today is chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. And the title for this message is A Redeemed Society, part 1. It's actually part 1. We haven't gotten into it quite yet. Uh, In chapter 1, verse 5, as you recall, Paul says this, For this reason I left you in Crete, to set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Now, Paul doesn't tell us explicitly what remained to be said in order other than appointing elders, but by the content and emphasis of this letter, we can discern at least part of what remained to be done in these churches, and that is to help the Christians on the island of Crete understand God's call to live distinctly from the rest of society. We are redeemed from sin and from the wrath of God And we are redeemed to be a society within a society. The gospel, as we've said, has been on the island of Crete for over 20 years, being brought initially by those who had traveled to Jerusalem for Pentecost, and the Lord saved them the day that the Holy Spirit came. And undoubtedly, Paul and Titus' ministry on the island had a significant effect on the number of believers, and so churches were growing in every city there on the island, and there needed to be elders appointed and instructions given, teaching provided. There were doctrinal issues that needed to be addressed, but Paul did not want Titus himself to, to address those doctrinal controversies. We learn at the end of the letter that he sent Zenos and Apollos on their way so that they could be the ones to address those controversies. Instead, he wanted Titus himself to focus on the teaching of how Christians should live in light of the gospel. These believers needed to learn the, the character and the lifestyle that were required of those who take the name of Christ upon themselves and identify as Christians, as little Christs, if you will. Perhaps you've heard that that's what the word Christian means. It means a, a little Christ, but I wonder have you considered what that means for your own life? To be called a Christian is not first and foremost to identify yourself with a religion or a body of doctrine, though that is true, to be called a Christian, to identify yourself as a Christian, is first and foremost to align yourself with a person, Jesus Christ. To call yourself a Christian is to identify yourself as a follower and representative of the man who lived and died and rose again and who now sits in heaven at the Father's right hand until that time when he will come to establish his kingdom on the earth. And by identifying with Jesus Christ, you are saying that though you dwell on this earth, and you may be a citizen of America or some other nation, your ultimate citizenship is in heaven. And you're also saying that as a citizen in heaven, your ultimate authority is not the president of the United States, But it is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And you're also saying that the laws and the rights that govern your life are not the Constitution or the federal or local laws that you might be under, but rather the law of Christ. The gospel is the good news that forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God is made possible through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We are saved through faith in that gospel. If you're here wondering if you're good enough to be accepted by God, let me be honest with you. You're not. None of us are. You don't need to clean up your life before God will let you into heaven. And the reason you don't need to is because you can't. None of us can You and I are incapable of making ourselves acceptable to God. Now take your Bible and flip back to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, just a few books or a few letters to the left. Here in Ephesians 2, Paul describes in no uncertain terms why we are unacceptable to God in and of ourselves. He says this in verses 1 to 3. Maybe some of you are still in that condition where you are indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Maybe you are still, by nature, a child of wrath. And no one, happily trudging in that muddy pit, is able to clean themselves off and jump out of that hole. But in light of that inability, in light of that condition, look at how he describes what God has done for us there, starting in verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus." For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Forgiveness of sin and reconciliation with God is only made possible by God giving us that gift which is undeserved. We ourselves cannot earn that gift. That is the message that you and I are called to proclaim in this world. God has placed you in an environment, in a home, in a workplace, in a school, where you can be the channel through which that message goes out to those who need to hear the gospel. But that message should never be communicated in a way that implies that salvation is about changing your destination after this life. As if you can get right with God and go on living as you have before. No, in fact, if you think about how dis- uh, salvation is described here in verse 5, the key phrase of what salvation is, right in the middle, is made us alive together with Christ. What should a person do who was dead but now is alive? They should live. They shouldn't crawl back into their coffin and go on dying as they were before. No, they should take off those burial clothes, right? And put something fresh on. In other words, don't think the way you used to think. Don't talk the way you used to talk. Don't live the way you used to live. Don't love the things that you used to love. You're alive. Now live like it. You are saved to live a whole life. New life, and that's the next step that Paul takes in his argument there in Ephesians chapter 2. Look at verse 10 For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We have been created for good works, we have been made alive to live a certain way. Well, what does living as one who is alive in Christ, mean? What does that look like? Well, Paul answers that question in his letter to Titus. In fact, Titus 2 and 3, you could say, are in exposition of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Titus 2 is an explanation of the personal character and conduct of believers. And then as we move into chapter 3, we'll see what living alive looks like as we engage with the world around us. Paul's overarching concern in this letter is that we understand that we have been saved in order to live for Christ. And that concern rises out of the reality that if we don't live for as Christ redeemed people ought to live, then we will bring repute on the name of Christ in the world. In fact, going back to Titus, Looking at verse 1, notice how the text starts with the phrase, but as for you, as for you. Paul contrasts Titus from those who were seeking to influence the church and teaching error. What defined those teachers, as we read in chapter 1, verse 16, is that they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him. They professed to believe in God, but their lives demonstrated the exact opposite. In fact, if you listen to those teachers talk, you would think, oh man, these people really love God. But then if you watch their life, you would have to conclude, I think they hate God. And that reality rendered them useless to accomplish anything good for God's kingdom. May that not be true. True. Of any of us here, instead of teaching things that rendered Titus and his hearers worthless for any good deed, Titus was called upon to teach and model a lifestyle which was consistent with sound doctrine, which that which is spiritually healthy and beneficial. So today we're going to cover what Paul says in verses two to five as he describes the personal character and conduct of older men, older women, and younger. Women, And then we'll come back next time uh, to work our way through to the end of verse 10. Now keep in mind that we're going to work today through 17 characteristics, most of which are fairly straightforward, so we'll walk through them fairly quickly. But let's begin by considering what Paul says should characterize older men there in verse 2. Ancient society divided age groups in a variety of ways. Hippocrates, that well-known uh, Hippocrates, excuse me, that well-known medical doctor from the fifth century BC, uh, d- distinguished the stages of life into seven stages, and the term for older men that is here in verse two, presbutae, was the second-to-last stage. And in his scheme, which defined uh, this, defined people between the ages of fifty to fifty-seven. Now, if you're curious, the last what that last stage is, what is fifty seven and beyond, uh, that is used, uh, that is characterized using the word geron, which uh, we get the word geriatric from. That's the stage that Elizabeth was in, by the way, when she had John the Baptist. Well, here in Titus 2, Paul doesn't follow that particular breakdown. He divides not all of life necessarily, but really adulthood into two particular stages, younger and older. For sure, this would include those who are 60 and above, but some would say that this could even be those as young as 40. Some would say this refers to those who have had a family, they've raised kids, and now their kids are grown. So whatever age that would be. Now, we can't be dogmatic, but the idea is that older men are those who have life experience, those who've been matured by the challenges of life, and they have the scars to show for it. They've begun to feel the aches and pains of the years of wear on their bodies. So whether or not you want to take that attribute to yourself, men, whether you're older, those are some things to consider. Well, Paul provides here four characteristics of these older uh, men that should be true Uh, about this age group, these qualities should be increasingly true of older men who claim the name of Christ. And though these qualities are elsewhere stated for all believers, so this is helpful for all of us to think through, Paul is essentially saying this is what, what especially should be true for older men. So let's look at the first one there in verse 2. The first character trait that should characterize older men is that they should be temperate. Temperate. The ESV says sober-minded. It could also be translated level-headed or self-controlled. To be temperate is not to be impulsive, which is a common feature of younger men. Older men, though, should be thoughtful about their decisions, not unduly influenced by the impulses of the flesh or the apparent Uh, circumstances that require urgency. Older men should exemplify careful decision-making, asking pertinent questions and getting multiple perspectives. They should be temperate. The second characteristic that older men should have is dignified. Older men must be dignified. To be dignified is to be worthy of respect, to be revered even. The, The dignified or the honorable person uh, lives not a perfect life, obviously, but lives a life that is God centered and is pursuing Christ likeness, aims at imitating Christ. Uh, the dignified person is just in his dealings. He seeks to be fair in his treatment of others and kind in his interactions. He's not enslaved by habits that harm himself or others, and he's not entertained by base or worldly activities. He really lives above the fray of friv- frivolity and triviality. The third characteristic here is that older men must be sensible. Sensible. You might have self-controlled or even temperate. There's certainly overlap with the first characteristic here, but the emphasis of sensibility is the mind and the thinking of the person. The word is sofrone, which is closely related to freneo which means to think. And we'll look at this character quality more in depth next time because it's the only one given for younger men. So we have to have something to say then. Uh, But for now, understand that sensible or self-controlled in the mind essentially means to have control of your thoughts in a way that you think about the world with humility. To have control of your thoughts in such a way that you think about the world with humility. That's what it means to be sensible. There are many people who are trying to get us to think about the world in all kinds of ways. The sensible person will not be swayed by one voice or one group of voices. A self controlled mind is controlled by truth and not passion. A sensible man is willing to be proven wrong. They are open to new information because he knows he isn't the source and arbiter of truth. A sensible man is a careful thinker, he doesn't come. To jump to conclusions. He doesn't give hot takes on 30 second video clips. His mental faculties will be controlled to allow himself to look at the world through the lens of scripture while also recognizing that life is complex enough that he may not have all the information he needs to be dogmatic. He has to be sensible Well, the final quality of older men identified here is that they must be sound in faith, in love, and in perseverance, a triad. And this triad of terms is similar, you might recall, to what we often see in Scripture of faith, hope, and love, right? We see that in various places in the Scripture. But here, perseverance replaces hope, and it's put last. And it's it's said that this triad really represents the whole gamut of human life, Faith representing one's relationship to God. Love representing one's relationship to others. And perseverance is the endurance of one living for Christ throughout their life. The idea of being sound is being healthy and not diseased. These qualities are in place and properly functioning to help strengthen the man's walk with the Lord in this world. There's nothing eating away at his walk with the Lord, his relationships with others. There's no sin that's pulling him apart. Regarding his faith, he has a growing knowledge of God and his convictions are based on Scripture. Regarding his love, he loves others sacrificially and ministers to them. He seeks to glorify God in his life and seeks to love others sacrificially. Regarding his perseverance, his walk with the Lord is not hindered by the challenges of life. He's not entangled by sin, nor do the world, the flesh, and the devil distract him from being faithful to the Lord. He is sound. He's healthy in these ways. Older men, I would encourage you to study these qualities in more depth and examine your life by them. Are you representing Christ well as an older man? Do those of you with white hair live in such a way that the younger men can look up to you and imitate you? I'm so grateful that some of you do. We have a number of older men that those of us who are younger would do well to spend time with and learn from. Well, next Paul addresses older women. Older women. Now, I don't know why in our culture the age of women is such a sensitive issue. But what I said before about the age range of older men applies to women as well. This could be referring to women as young as 40, but perhaps a key marker is that a woman... Has, is old enough to have raised children and sent them out of the home. Since that's part of the life curriculum they are to pass on to younger women, it stands to reason that they would have gone through it themselves or at least be old enough to have done so. Nevertheless, women, whether or not you want to embrace that moniker of older, you are, if you are at least 60 or have raised children, and especially if your children have left home, this section is for you. The first characteristic is that older women are to be reverent in their behavior. Reverent in their behavior. This term is only used here in the New Testament, but in the broader uh, Greek usage, it refers to things or people that are holy or reserved for religious service. The idea is that the the behavior of older women here is to to be godly. They're to live in devotion to the Lord. And to be and combined with other attributes, older women are to be given largely to the things of the Lord, not to the things of this world. In 1 Timothy 5, when Paul describes what are the qualifications of a woman who is to receive support from the church, Paul says this, Now she who is a widow indeed and who has been left alone, meaning she doesn't have any family members, she has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. But she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. He goes on to say, A widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, having a reputation for good works, and if she has brought brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself in every good work. The reverent woman gives herself to the things of the Lord. And ministers to others. Now notice the next two qualities are negative. First, older women are not to be malicious gossips. Malicious gossips. The word word is diabolos. This is the name. This is one of the names of Satan. He is the diabolos. The slanderer. In fact, of the 37 times this term is used in Scripture, two of them are when... It's described what older women should not do. One is, as we saw in 1, 2 Timothy 3, what describes unbelievers. And the rest of the times, 34 times, it's translated as devil. It's the name of our adversary. That's how serious this is. To maliciously gossip is to slander and speak evil against others. Women who claim the name of Christ should be loathed to imitate the devil. But it is a temptation. Those who have a lot of discretionary time can be tempted to devote their mind to the lives of others, observing and making judgments, coming to conclusions and then spreading their opinions, smearing the names of others. The danger of widows and older women is to be a busybody, as Paul described in 1 Timothy 5.13, where he says, at the same time, they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house and not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies talking about things not proper to mention. And so Paul instructs both Timothy and Titus to warn women against such a temptation. Well, the next characteristic that Paul identifies here negatively is that older women should not be enslaved to much wine not be enslaved to much wine. Wine, as we know, is the normal beverage people drank on a daily basis. Normal consumption was moderate, and most people would not get drunk. But with less responsibilities, one would be tempted to linger long over wine, as it says in Proverbs, and get inebriated as the day went on. Older women, and men as well for that matter, could potentially use wine to alleviate the aches and pains in their body and help them forget their troubles and their loneliness. But being enslaved to alcohol or any other kind of mind-altering substance makes it impossible to be productive and contribute to God's kingdom. The very thing that makes enslavement to wine possible, discretionary time, is the very thing that gives older women the greatest opportunity to accomplish much for the Lord. Rather than wasting away hours and days and weeks On pointless, if not destructive things, older women have an opportunity to be uniquely used by the Lord and to have a great impact on the church and future generations. And so Paul then returns to the positive and at the end of verse 3 says how older women should be occupying their discretionary time. And that is teaching what is good, teaching what is good. There's a lot of debate among Christians today as to the role of women, men and women in the home and in the church. There are those who believe that in order to be considered of value in God's kingdom, women must be able to fulfill every role that a man can fulfill. They say that because we are all one in Christ, there ought not to be any distinctions between men and women in the church. Women should be able to be elders and pastors as well. And they would go on to say that as soon as you place a limitation on a woman to say that they can't be an elder or preach from the pulpit or teach men, that automatically you've minimized their giftedness and their role and cut them off from exercising their gifts for the full benefit of the church. But that cannot be further from the truth. The influence and impact that one can have is not determined by the office that one fills or the title that you have. Now, there's certainly an influence and an impact you can have from behind a pulpit. But there are a multitude of ways in which all of us can have a significant impact on the lives of others and even the church as a whole that simply isn't possible from behind the pulpit. That's what Paul is getting at here. Older women ought to be utilizing their time to teach and have a lifelong generational impact on younger women who in turn have an impact and influence on their husbands and their children. Women, if you want to see the church strengthened today, if you want to help the church prepare for what is to come tomorrow, you can do that by teaching what is good to younger women. Younger women need to hear from older women. Younger women are not going to be taught by the culture how to love their husbands or their children. They're not going to be taught by the media how to Be workers at home. Younger women don't naturally know what it means to biblically submit to their husbands. Universities certainly aren't going to teach younger women how to be pure and sensible. The world presents an entirely false picture of what is a successful woman. And so older, wiser, godly women are essential and they're needed to teach younger women in these areas and more. That's why I'm so grateful for the women's ministry here at Hope Bible Church. Ladies, if you don't typically attend the monthly Women in the Word, I would encourage you to make that a priority. And husbands, if, if your wife doesn't typically go, I would urge you to do everything you can to make it easy for your wife to participate. We're so blessed to have in our church women, older and younger, who are wise and godly, who know God's Word, and who are committed to teaching what is good to women of all ages. Now we also have, of course, the weekly Bible studies that Morag and Cain teach that are so helpful as you study the word together with other women various ages and backgrounds. But when Paul teaches that older women are to teach younger women, I don't think he necessarily has in mind the formal teaching and learning opportunities as, as critical as those are. Those are certainly part of the process, but they don't necessarily allow for the particular application of truth that I think Paul seems to have in mind here. It's one thing for a young woman to hear that she needs to love her husband and her children. But sometimes a young woman has the question, okay, but how do I love my particular children? How do I I love my specific husband? That kind of precise application from general principles is only possible through one-on-one and life-on-life discipleship. So can I urge you, younger or older women, if you see a younger woman struggling in some way, don't don't think to yourself, oh, they need to take a class or they need to join that Bible study. That might be helpful and that would be good if they're not already doing that. But what what would be even more helpful is if you would come alongside them, get to know them, Observe the the, the details of their life that help you understand the dynamics that they're working with. And then when you establish that relationship, you can serve them by speaking the truth in love based on the knowledge you've gained about their life. Ladies, there there are all kinds of good works God has prepared for you, but don't neglect one of your greatest opportunities to have real spiritual impact on lives and families and generations. Teach what is good. With whatever discretionary time the Lord has given you, older women, invest in the lives of younger women and you will have an eternal impact for Christ. Well, now we turn to younger women. We've kind of danced around the qualities already, but let's hit them head on. You cannot read this list of qualities without realizing that what Paul presents here, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is completely different than how our world thinks about the role and responsibilities of women today. And here again, we're reminded that the Christian community is not meant to be just a people who have a different destination, but rather we are to be a society within a society, and each one of us is to look altogether different from our peers in the world. And so the first characteristic is that younger women must be encouraged to love their husbands And their children there in verse 4. More literally, uh, love their husbands is one word. Love their children is another word. It literally says that they are to be encouraged to be husband lovers and children lovers. These are really parallel terms, philandrus and philotechnos. So the kind of love is the same just for different people. Paul is not making a distinction between marital love and parental love. The implication is that what women need to be taught is that their husband and their children are their primary relationships. There are those re- these are the relationships that require their greatest attention. These relationships are not just two among many, but they are at the top. They are the priority for a young woman. All other relationships must take a back seat to these, whether it's best friends or parents or siblings. There is a commitment and determination that's required for a young woman to maintain these priorities in relationships. It's easy, especially in our day, to prioritize one's career or family or friends over one's husband and children. You can get so involved in other things, even good things, to the detriment of your own family. Now, to some, it might seem difficult to imagine that a young woman would have a hard time loving her husband and her children. Some might ask, isn't isn't every young wife enthralled with her husband? Doesn't every young mom love her children to death? Well, the answer is no. Many do, but not all. In today's society, children are often seen as a hindrance to one's personal fulfillment. The pursuit of one's career can easily supplant a woman's responsibility to her marriage and family. Young women, don't be like those in the world who are eager for someone else to come and take their kids off their hands so that they can go do something else, anything else. Don't be deceived into thinking that your value and worth in this world is based on what you accomplish out there. Don't think that What your family really needs is to have a higher family income. No, your value and your worth as a younger woman, just like the rest of us believers, is rooted in your union with Christ. And your privilege is to serve Him by loving your husband and your children well. Well, moving on to verse 5, continuing on to verse 5, the next quality that young women are to cultivate is sensible. This is the same term applied to older men and then younger men in verse 6. Younger women, like everyone else, must learn to control their thoughts in order to think about the world with humility. Older women can help younger women learn good sense, discernment, and judgment. Left to ourselves, we all make mistakes, don't we? And we adopt ways of thinking about life in this world that aren't accurate and are unhelpful. And so older women have that longer life perspective and more biblical wisdom that they can help younger women to avoid the mistakes and immature thinking. The next quality in verse 5 is that young women should learn to cultivate purity. Purity. Though sexual purity is a topic that is often emphasized for young men, it is just as important for young women. Because it is often emphasized as an issue that men have sometimes, in fact many times, women are neglected in that discussion. It's implied almost that women don't struggle, which is entirely false. Immorality and impurity is just as much of a struggle for many young women as it is for young men. And so we need older women to step into that struggle and minister and counsel younger women on those issues. The next quality Paul wants older women to cultivate in younger women is that they would be workers at home, workers at home. A homemaker, we might say today, or if you prefer a home engineer, or domestic engineer. The Bible teaches that the home is the domain of the woman. The home is not the exclusive place a woman can work, but by God's design, the home is the primary place where a woman is to exercise her gifts and skills and abilities and energy. The purpose is not to win the prize for the cleanest house on the block. That's not the purpose. Rather, the purpose is to create an environment where ministry can take place. And of course, the primary ministry of a young woman is her husband and her children. She is to partner with her husband in raising children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And if a woman doesn't have children or they're grown, then she can focus on making the home a place where others can come and be ministered to. To be a worker at home doesn't mean that the husband shouldn't have any responsibilities at home. Some men enjoy cooking and other aspects of domestic life. What we often consider to be traditional responsibilities in the home is just that. It's traditional. It's not biblical. Husbands and wives should work together according to their strengths and their weaknesses, their skills and their desires. But the general distinction should be maintained that the home is the primary responsibility of the wife and the husband's primary responsibilities to provide and protect and to lead his family. Now, if you want more teaching on this, Pastor Leak wrote a really helpful series of articles just a couple of years ago, and you can find that on DiscoverHope.today. DiscoverHope.today, and just search for "wives." The series is called "Wives in the Workplace." Really helpful and important teaching from Pastor Leak. The next attribute is that young women should. Cultivate kindness. Kindness. Agathos is the Greek, which is usually translated good. This is a person that is useful to the Lord and benefits others through their life and their actions. A good or kind young woman is one who sees others in need and ministers to those needs. Kindness is going out of your way to bless others, either materially if there's a physical need or spiritually if they have a need for encouragement and blessing. And then the final attribute there in verse 5 is that older women must encourage younger women to be subject to their own husbands. Subject to their own husbands. Hupotasso is the word and it means to place oneself under the authority of another. It's the same word that we see in verse 9, that slaves are to be subject to their own masters in everything. Notice that wives are to be subject to their own husbands. That's important. Women are not subject to men in general. Wives are to be subject to their own husbands in particular. Now, this is the same for all of us in life. Any of us who have authority over us, which is to say, all of us, none of us lives outside of authority. All of us are under the authority of others, but only certain people have authority over us. Those of you who. In the military, know that when it comes to operational authority, just because someone has a a higher rank than you, if they're not part of your operation, they have limitations on what they can ask you to do. They can't override the orders you've been given for your particular operation. The same is true in a business. Just because someone is a supervisor doesn't mean they have authority over you unless they are your supervisor. Law enforcement and civil authorities have jurisdiction. So. You're not in their jurisdiction. They have no authority over you. So this principle cuts across all spheres of life. Young women are to learn to be subject to their own husbands. Now, obviously time does not allow for a full treatment of what this means, but let me be clear as to what it does not mean. It does not mean that wives are their husbands' slaves and must do everything they say without question. It does not mean that women have no voice. And cannot contribute their wisdom to decisions that need to be made. It does not mean that women must get, every, get approval for every decision or action they want to take from their husband. It does not mean that once a decision has been made or a request has been given that a wife cannot or should not appeal to her husband if she has concerns. Wives, like husbands, have individual or are individual souls and have a mind that is capable and designed to think and reason. And so wives, God gave you to your husband because the Lord knows your husband needs your skills and your insight and your perspective if he is going to lead well. Men, only a fool would make decisions by limiting himself to his own thoughts. Leaders in every sphere of authority have advisors and counselors that they rely on to make decisions and for those of you who are husbands, that is one of the roles that your wife plays in your life. You need her wisdom. You need her knowledge. You need her insights and intuition. All of us who've been married for any number of years know and could recount to you all the mistakes we've made uh, because we didn't seek our wife's input or went against her counsel. But in the end, whether with or without. Your counsel, wives, whether it is going with or against your advice, the Lord calls you to submit and follow the lead of your husband. Your privilege is to work alongside him, seeking to make his leadership a success, even though sometimes it means minimizing the consequences of his mistakes. But you are to walk side by side with your husband, encouraging him, loving him, supporting him in his role as head of the church. Now, I don't know if all of you know this, women, but uh, for the last year or so, the recordings from the Women in the Word have been posted on the Sermon Audio website. And so if you've missed those, you can always go back, and I would urge you to do that, to listen to those messages by the wise women in our church. But in particular, in October, Sue Lee taught on the issue of submission, and I found that to be very helpful. I can't think of anyone else in our church who has better exemplified biblical submission and who as a result has had a significant influence in the kingdom of God, especially in this church, then Sue. So go and listen to that message and the other ones that are posted. Well, as we draw to a close today, I want to draw your attention to the final uh, clause of verse 5, which provides the purpose for all this. Grammatically, it's specifically the purpose for why younger women should uh, be characterized in these ways, but contextually it applies to everything we've said about older men and women as well. Here's the purpose. You can see it in your Bible. So that the word of God will not be dishonored. So that the word of God will not be dishonored. The word dishonored there is often translated blasphemed. It means to speak against, to revile, to slander, to speak disrespectfully. The Lord spoke repeatedly through the prophet Isaiah, excuse me, Ezekiel. And time and time again, the Lord was telling Ezekiel to communicate to Israel that the reason they were being judged is because their behavior was profaning the name of God. They were communicating a false message about God to the nations by the way that they lived. When a Christian lives like the rest of the world, they dishonor God and the word of God by misrepresenting the power and truth and beauty of God and his standards. The world can rightly ask when they observe a Christian like this, why should I live by God's standards when you don't live by God's standard? In the last 40 to 50 years, the church has lost its influence in the world because it has spent so much time, money, and effort trying to reform the world while it refused to reform itself. The church has spent millions of dollars on political efforts to uphold the biblical view of marriage while marriages in the church were crumbling. The church has stood outside picketing abortion clinics while their own children were being lost to pornography and video games and all kinds of worldliness. Beloved, these things should not be. Do you know that there is not a single... Verse or phrase in the Bible that commands us to live in a certain way that we reform the culture. Not a single one. But we do have this phrase in verse 14. That Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Zealous for good deeds. There is a lot of good we can do in the world. But we have to start with our own lives and our own families. So I end with this question for you to chew on. What opinion about God does your life communicate to those around you? What opinion about God does your life communicate to those around you? Think long, think hard, repent where need be, Rejoice in your redemption, the forgiveness that you have in Christ and cultivate a zeal for these good deeds that we've talked about today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we think about a passage like this, certainly it would be helpful to go slower and to consider very practically how to live these things out. But if we're honest, we generally understand these things. We know what, what these terms mean. We We can visualize these characteristics in the lives of others who have been faithful. And we can see in our own lives where we fall short. Again, we ask forgiveness for our failures, that we have not given attention to these things, that we have allowed ourselves to be more conformed to the world rather than transformed uh, by your grace. I pray that you would, by your grace and by the power of your Spirit, transform us who are your people the people that you have purchased, that you would cause us to be zealous for good deeds, that we would be eager to cultivate these qualities in our lives. And that as one generation comes into the church after another, as new believers enter in, that there would be ample models of older men and older women that can be looked to for wisdom and guidance and counsel as examples of how to live in light of the redemption that we have received through Christ. May our lives bring glory to your name. For the sake of Christ, we pray, amen.